Okay. Thank you, everybody, for coming. We are continuing our shore tonight on the tefillah. And in the previous shiur, we discussed the history of Kel Melech Neeman. And that was an addition, a liturgical addition to, I'm sorry, give me a sec. That was a liturgical addition to the corpus of Kriyat Shema, where it has mysterious origins in the Dark Ages, but became a very uh, fixed part of our uh, reading of the Kriyat Shema. And last week, we looked at the potential history and all the evidence we have for where it began, how it began, and how it became a permanent part of the Kriya Shema for many people. Now, the Kriya Shema itself, as a mitzvah deraisa, is very well understood by most Jews. I wouldn't even say most Orthodox Jews. But as a, pasuk, as a verse in the Torah, it is itself a critical and very elemental profession of faith. Saying Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, is a very elemental and basic affirmation of faith, which is integral to Jewish faith. And it's something that almost every Jew, if he doesn't know it by heart, will at least know about it. They will know about the Shema Yisrael. They know the words, they've heard of the words, and those are really the core text of Jewish faith. And as the Pusik itself says in the, in the very next, very simple paragraph, we have a commandment to recite Krishma B'Shoch B'Chav Kumecha in the morning and in the evening. The way this halacha developed, of course, is that the Chachamim instructed us with certain time, zone, time uh, periods in which we could say the Kriya Shema, and the Kriya Shema developed with a bracha before and after, both in the morning and in the evening. Now, studying the text of Kriya Shema itself wouldn't be a study of liturgy. It would be a study, it would be more of a study of, of Torah, it would be more of a study of Bible. And looking at that text itself, as liturgical text would be a little bit odd since it's really a recitation. It's it's really a a learning of Torah, which is why, especially why we saw last week that the bracha that comes before it, Ahavat Olam or Ahavaraba, is essentially a bracha for praying. It's a, sorry, a bracha for reading the Torah. So rather than discussing the Shema Yisrael text itself, I thought it would be appropriate to jump to the only section of the Kriya Shema text itself, which is not from the Torah, and that is the the section of Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Ve'olam Ed. This part, this single sentence, blessed is his glorious name, the, the, the glorious name of his kingdom forever and ever, this sentence itself is not from the Torah, as the Gemara explicitly uh, instructs us, and as the Gemara uh, explicitly tells us in the Mishnayis, seem to recognize explicitly. Rather, we know that this Pasuk had its genesis, had its creation sometime in the time of the Beis HaMikdash and probably by Yesheni. In the, although we don't know this for sure, it seems that, as we're going to see, most of the evidence points to its, its innovation in by Yesheni. And I just remembered uh, like an hour ago that the, that the, the Hasidim hold, that the, the Mekubalim think that in Bayes Rishon they didn't have it. Only in Bayesheni. Why? Because in Bayes Rishon they had a Yichudila, while in Bayesheni they had a Yichudata. Essentially, Baruch Shem is only a a a praise when you have when you could only bless the name of God rather than blessing God's essence. And in the first first temple they were able to praise God more directly, while in the second temple they had to praise Him indirectly. 
Now, let's begin to dissect our earliest sources for Baruch Shem. And step by step, at least we'll look at the historical sources. And we're going to climb our way back as far as we can. So let's let's start with the Mishnah in Yoma. The Mishnah, the first Mishnah to explicitly say the words Baruch Shem from the Mishnah by Yom Kippur. We all say this on Yom Kippur, right? Where the where the coin Gadol says, Ana Hashem Right? So the high priest says a confession for the people of Israel. And he brings the pasuk. Right? He brings this pasuk which says, Before Hashem's a four-letter name, you shall become pure. And after people hear God's name, said explicitly, what do they say? When the people in the Beit HaMikdash heard the Kohen Gadol say um, uh, the the name of the Shem Hashem HaMufarash, they would prostrate themselves and say Baruch Shem Kol Machut A little bit earlier than the Mishnah, in the Tosefta and in the Mechotu Rebbe Shmal, um, we also find Baruch Shem Kol Machut So roughly in the fourth or third generation of Tanoim, we already see the words mentioned Explicitly. Now, if you look in the Gemara and Ta'anit, the Gemara and Ta'anit brings the 24, the extra eight blessings, <coughs> eight or nine, <coughs> I'm sorry, blessings <coughs> that they would say on a Ta'anit in the Beit HaMikdash. And the, um, <coughs> the, the, Gemara and the mission over there make it clear that there's a special procedure. And the Gemara delineates what that procedure is. It says, what would they say? Instead of saying, they would say, and then they would end, and they wouldn't say, they wouldn't say, in the for some reason, in the Beit HaMikdash, Amen was seen as a very terse word, a very legalistic word. It wasn't Amen in their time didn't have the same ring to it. It was a very short word. And in ancient Hebrew, as far as we could tell from the archaeological evidence, amen seemed to usually mean um, affirmative. That's like the word, the 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 most, the closest English word you could get to amen is uh, affirmative. So it didn't really seem elaborate enough or appropriate enough in the Beit HaMikdash. Um, and therefore they would answer instead, Baruch Shem Fol Nachut Ed. Says the Gemara, the Kol Kach Lama, why why do we need such a, such an elaborate procedure? We don't say amen in the base of Mikdash. Similarly, the Mechot of Yishmael says, When we call out of the name of God, uh, you have to give godel or majesty to our God. And Baruch Se- the the response of Baruch Shem Kod Machut Olam Ve'ed was seen to them as a as a form of majesty of of um of bestowing kingship and glorifying God's name. Now this idea of it being of the this sorry this practice of it being of not saying Amen in the Beit Hamikdash and only saying Baruch Shem Kod Machut Olam Ve'ed survived for a little bit even after the Churban. The Gemara in the next, uh, a little bit further, says there, even after the Hurban tried, or maybe even, I'm sorry, maybe even during when the bias stood, but they were second century Tanama, couldn't be. So it must, it must be, it must be, sorry. 
It must be after the Hurban. They still did it outside the, the Temple Mount and Bigvulin, they would call it, outside of Yerushalayim. The other Chachamim didn't agree with them. You shouldn't say Baruch Shem for Mahut For them, no, you'd only have to say uh, Amen. So the other, the, besides, we're, tonight we're really going to be, um, I guess, uh, uh, hopping from tip of iceberg to another tip of iceberg because there's so much material on Baruch Shem that we're just going to try to cover the main points from many different Gemaras, many different Sugyas. There's another Mishnah in Sota which says that after Berkat Kohanim, people wouldn't say Amen. They would say Baruch Shem after they said all three Pesukim. And again, this, 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 uh, what's the word? This practice didn't survive outside of the Beit HaMikdash. So exactly what's happening here? Why is it that Amen in the Beit HaMikdash is not considered enough? So it seems from the Mepharshim that in the Beit HaMikdash, there had to be an elaborate ritual. That there's something about in the, 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 practice and the aura of the Beit HaMikdash where things had to be done in an elaborate way. It wasn't enough to do things, uh, you know, uh, the way they would do it in shul. There had to be a distinction between a regular Beit HaKnesset and the Beit HaMikdash. This is the real house of God. This is not just your your run, um, run-of-the-mill synagogue. Therefore, there was, a, there was a push by the Kohanim, it seems, to keep things special in the Beit HaMikdash and to keep things more elaborate and more ornate in the liturgy. Now, if you take the word, the the, the genre of something like Baruch Shem, Kivod Machutol Olam Ed, you would, you would probably call a genre like that in English a doxology, a doxology, or at least a small doxology. In English, a doxology is, is, a, is a liturgical expression of praise to God. It basically, we would call that in Hebrew a shvach. It comes from the Greek word doxa. The, originally, the, the Greek word doxa meant um, like glory. But when they, when they translated the Bible into Greek in the Septuagint, they used the word doxa as a way to translate the word in Hebrew kavot. And so et, the Greek language evolved. And eventually in Greek, the word doxa literally became like the Hebrew equivalent of the word kavot. And therefore, in non-Jewish liturgies, like many Christian liturgies, the a doxology is something that they use when they're talking about a general praise to God, but specifically when they speak about the glory of God. Very often, it's a difficult word to define, even in Christian liturgy, but, but they, have, they have a genre. The word itself, the genre of doxology is easy enough to, to define, but the, the word itself um, was related in early times to the word kavod. Now, there was... There's an interesting background to some of this study. In all of the history of the of the research and the chakira and the limud of Jewish um, liturgy and learning tefillah, nobody has really ever attempted to study Jewish liturgy and compare it to Christian liturgy, besides for someone named Eric Werner. You see, the problem is that it could take a lifetime of study, of, of research, and of teaching, and, and amassing knowledge to know enough about Jewish liturgy to teach it, and let alone to write books on it. And it's likewise for Christian liturgy. It's very hard to do both in one lifetime. It's, these are really deep subjects. There's mountains of knowledge to know. So almost nobody has tried to write a comparison. Besides one man, his name was Eric Werner. He um, worked in the Hebrew Union College. He was born in Vienna in 1901. 
And he got his PhD in, I think, in Prague and eventually settled in America where he taught in hookah and in the sorry in uh, the Hebrew in, in Hebrew Union College for as like the the chief of the musicology department. And in 1959, he published the first and to this day really only book uh, which compares Jewish liturgy to Christian liturgy. And it has its it's it's uh, I would call it its flaws because uh, to put it simply, nobody's a real expert in both. And so there's criticisms of this book abound. However, he was one of the first to approach a lot of these comparisons, which might be important because we're looking at a time from the first century and a little bit earlier. So he he really was he really did a couple of great pages on these psukim of Barashin and I'll explain why in a second. So in the Hebrew liturgy, right? If we take the Jewish uh, corpus of Tefillah, right? What are the small doxologies that we're familiar with? If we take single sentence doxologies, right? Hashem Aleich, Hashem Aleich, Hashem Im Lolam Ve'Ed. That would be a short doxology. Baruch Hashem Lolam, Amen Ba'Amen. Baruch Hashem Alokei Yisrael Min Alolam Ve'Ad Olam. Right, all those short uh, words, which were, let's say, you put those; those were put at the end of every sefer of Tehillim. Right, we end the sefer of Tehillim with Baruch Hashem Alokei Yisrael Min Alolam, Amen Ve'Amen. Or Baruch Was Hashem Ambarah, and everybody replies Baruch Hashem Barach Lolam Ve'Ed. Or you could take Baruch Hashem Kol Machuto Lolam Ve'Ed. Yehi Shmeir Abam Barach Lolam Omei Amaya. Kedusha, right? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Hashem Sevakot Meloch Laaretz Kevodo. A lot of these <laughs> short verses are what could be classified as a uh, as a small doxology, and he uses this um, framework to explain how in the Beis Hamikdash they began with these um, they began developing these short doxologies, and he tries to define what a short, what a doxology is. And, and, and basically, essentially, in his terminology, on the one hand, and this is something already, he's not about Palmachadish here, but the the first point, the most important point is that if it's going to be a short uh, one of these, if it's going to be something like this on this list, if it's going to be a short shvach, it's going to talk about Hashem in the second person, right? Baruch Shein for It's not a bracha, right? A shvach is not a bracha. We're not talking about Hashem Baruch Hashem Malachalam. It's going to be talking about Hashem in the third person. Right, Baruch Shem Kavod Machuto Lolamed, Baruch Hashem Mborach, Yeheshmeir Abam Mavrach. Always talking about God in the third person, and usually it speaks about God's eternity, how God is always going to be king, and that's how he defines it in the Jewish in the in the Jewish era. And he believes that from there the Christians borrowed this smaller doxology and developed it into much longer doxologies, and that's why the Christians today have. In their liturgy, something very a very fixed genre called a doxology. Before and after every section of liturgy, they have something called a doxology. While we don't have any such thing, but they have that because they got it from the early Jewish practice from the Beis Hamikdash. That's that's Werner's entire spiel about about uh, doxologies, and we're going to return to this um, in a few minutes. Now, again, this that's a distinction that the bracha was the successful. Uh, the bracha is 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 what we typically use. Doxology is something. Is something that was used in the Beis Hamikdash, but is only used rarely in Tefillah now. We have it in a few places in Tefillah, but it's used less often right now. Now, what if we start thinking about? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at the Gemara in uh, a Gemara in a second. So, if we start thinking about the nature of doxologies, if you were a Kayan leading things in the Beis Hamikdash, right? If you were going to develop this short type of liturgy. Think about it as a kayan. I'm a kayan. 
and I'm going to want to make this elaborate. I want to make this this I want to make this space of Mikdash hop, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to make people you're going to make people say things loudly. There's in no way can you imagine that in the base of Mikdash people are going to say something like Hashem Allah Hashem Allah or Baruch Hashem Baruch or if they're going to reply Baruch Hashem that they're going to say that quietly. These are responses. These are ways to make the liturgy more ornate. So <laughs> many of the Chachamim who looked at this at Baruch Hashem Tvod Machutolam Ve'ed believe that in the Beit Hamikdash, many of the Farshim believe that in the Beit Hamikdash, if they were saying Baruch Hashem Tvod Machutolam Ve'ed, they were saying it out loud. First of all, second of all, there was a theory developed by somebody, a, a scholar named Aptowitzer. He believes that, and this is kind of funny, he believes that they developed it. And, and I'm just going to, I'm saying it just to refute it because it's funny. He says they they developed it to affirm Shema Yisrael. Because he, th- he says in the Beis HaMikdash, right, they're living in a time of sectarianism. And Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad says that Hashem is God, Hashem is one, right? So if you're a sectarian, you could say, no, we could relearn the whole Pasuk a different way. Meaning, let's say uh, Hashem, uh, let's say if you're a Christian, you could say, uh, uh, there's three names of God here, and the Christians were, by the way, originally Christians didn't argue with the Jews about Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, It was only in future generations of Christians, like later in the third, fourth century, where they started learning up Shema Yisrael. It doesn't mean Hashem is one. It means that Hashem is three, which is one. Because look, it says there's three names of God, and he is one, right? There's three persons in one. That was the whole Christian lumnus. So Abduitzer believes that, yeah, they said Baruch Shem out loud in the Beis HaMikdash. But after the Beis HaMikdash, when the, um, what do you call it? After the Beis HaMikdash, when the Christians started twisting the, twisting the meaning, Baruch Shem Tvod Malchusay became the reaffirmation. No, we're talking about one God. Baruch Shem Kivayd Malchusay, his Malchus Lailamvayad. It's one God that we're talking about. And Baruch Shem, in his view, was used as a outside of the Beis HaMikdash because they didn't need it outside of the Beis HaMikdash, but they kept using it to affirm against the Christians. The problem with this theory, and Werner points this out, is that the Christians also use Baruch Shem. You can't you can't say that this became an anti-Christian uh, pasuk if the Christians themselves use Baruch Shem all the time. So it doesn't really add up. But now we're going to get to where we need to be. Um, after all this blue, before we're, we just discussed the Mishnah, let's get back to where we need to be, which is in the Gemara, which is going to shed a lot of light as to how Baruch Shem developed after uh, the Chorban. And even more so, the Messiah that the Amirayim have might enlighten us into what happened even before the uh, many years before the Chorban. So let's look at this together. I'm going to share my screen to a Gemara in... Uh, did I open this properly? I did, thank God. All right, here we go. This is a Gemara in Psachim, Daf, Mem, Nun, Hei, Om, Beis, and Nun, Vav, The Mishnah says in Psachim, that there were six things that the people of Yericho did. Three of them the Chachamim liked, three of them the Chachamim didn't like, right? So three of, well, I think, well, none of them they liked, but uh, three of them they, they, they protested, three of them they didn't protest. Of the three things that, they, that the Chachamim didn't protest, one of them is Karchines Shema, right? So let's, let me show you here on the, on the screen. The Karchines Shema, I hope I'm sharing the correct screen. Let me just see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The Karchen Shema. 
and they wouldn't make a pause between that and Vehafta. That they would pause it in a specific way, which might have twisted the meaning. Okay, Tanarabanan. Um let's see the the way the Tanaim put it. So this goes back to an earlier Malchik between her mayor and her Vihuda. But Rav Yehuda says, no, it wasn't that they wouldn't make a pause. Rav Yehuda says that what's going on with these Anshi Yericho, these people of Yericho, when they said Shema in their synagogues, they wouldn't say Baruch Shem. And the Chachamim didn't protest, which sounds like, which tells us many things. First of all, this tells us that for some reason, these people of Yericho had their own culture. They had their own liturgical uh, nuances. And they didn't necessarily do everything that the centralized rabbinate wanted them to do. Most likely, this first part of the Mishnah, this uh, this part of uh, the Shisha Dvarim, is a much earlier tam- uh, Tanoic statement. Because if you, you have later Tanoim, like the Behudan or Mayor, arguing about this. They're already from the, from the second and third century. You have later Tanoim arguing about this. So therefore, clearly, this section of the Mishnah of these six things is from earlier Tanaim who lived in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, recounting a story. These Tanaim are talking about the Anshiricha who happened before that. This is an old story, probably before the turn of, of the millennium. And therefore, we know that these people of Yericho were a little bit different. They did not say, uh, they read Shema a little bit different. Karchen es Shema, and the, and the Rav Yehuda says, Sorry, mayor says they wouldn't pause. Review that says it means that they also wouldn't that either they didn't either either or either it's and or or just or they wouldn't they wouldn't say moral shame to Malhusa. Now clearly if the Chachamim didn't protest, that means that they didn't see it as strictly necessary. They saw it as halachically optional, which is fascinating. So there was never a real gzeira dirabanan that you have to say moral shame. They they recommended it but they didn't protest for people who didn't, which sounds like if you didn't say it, you would still be Yaitse. Or today, the Shulchan Aruch already paskins that, no, Baruch Shem is part of the Yichud. If you don't say it, you're not Yaitse. But from, the, from, from, the, from these versions of the Tanoim, it would sound like the Chachamim earlier would have not disqualified a Shema if someone didn't say Baruch Shem. So now here's the most fascinating part of the Gemara. The Anan, how about us? We're here living 300 years later. Uh, my time, Amrinon. Why do we say Baruch Shem? What What is the history of this? The Gemara is acting as if it doesn't know the history of Baruch Shem. So, Kedidar Shem and Malakish. Let's, let's, um, it must be like, like the Drash of, of Reish Lakish who lived in the, in the, in the third century. So essentially, here's the story. The Shvatim came to, to Yaakov Avinu's bed when he was about to die, and Yaakov Avinu called them to his bed because he wanted to tell them when Mashiach was going to come, when there was going to be a Gile Shechina in the world. And the Shekhinah left him. So he said, why is the Shekhinah leaving me? And all of his sons made perhaps one of my sons here as a Russia, like Esau or like Ishmael, just like my, 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 my forefathers had Rishayim as sons. Maybe one of my Shvatim is going to be evil, and that's why the Shekhinah left me. So his son said, No, they, they heard what their father said. No, we are all Tzadikim. We all believe in God's unity. 
And Yaakov was inspired, and he replied to his sons, We have the same address here, not just in the Gemara, but also in the Targum Yenison. Sorry, in the Targum Yerushalmi, on, on the Pasuk, in in uh, in Vayechi. We have the same we have the same account brought in the Medish, in the in, in the Targum over there. Now I remember, I'll just if we have time, I'll I'll mention the Chassam Sefer says a beautiful thing here. He says that that the Yaakov Avinu, when the Shechina left him, he was worried that he wanted to be Megala to his sons, the the Ketayamin, or when Mashiach was going to come, or when there was going to be a Giloy Shechina in the world. And then the the Shechina left, the Shechina left him. So he was really afraid that perhaps one, there was something wrong with the um, Klal itself. There was something wrong with the genetics of Klal itself that they would never be Zoyche to have a Gile Shechina. There was some sort of soul. There was something wrong, something that he had to, to fix. And that really depressed him. He was he was really concerned that if I can't see the Gile Shechina that's coming, um, if I can't see that, then perhaps there's something wrong with one of my sons. So when his sons replied, Shema Yisrael, uh, Hashem Alekinu Hashem Echad, what he then realized was that there was a Giloy Shechina that happens in every generation. Meaning you don't have to, the Shechina left Yaakov Avinu not because there was a Pagam in his sons. Rather because it's not important when Mashiach comes. Every generation of, of the Jewish people is Megala Shechina in this world. Every generation is special and every generation brings Hashem's glory into this world. That's why Yaakov Avinu was inspired. And he said, Baruch Shein Kvoyed Malchusay Le'olam it's forever and ever, not just when Mashiach comes. Not Hashem's glory is not just in the day Mashiach comes. Hashem's glory is in every generation, and that was what the. That's why uh, Yaakov Avinu replied that way. Okay, we're we're running out of time, so I'm going to go as quickly as possible. In fact, the Gemara, the Gemara says, Amri um, Rabbanon, the Reish Lakish says, the Rabbanon said, "What are we going to do?" Meishu Benu didn't say it, and Yaakov Avinu didn't. Uh, uh, sorry, Meishu Benu didn't say it, and Yaakov did say it. So what are we going to do? How are we going to put this into Kriya Shema? So they decided we're going to say it quietly. So that's his um, his solution. That's the solution of the Chachamim. His story is, it must be the Chachamim said, we're going to say Baruch Shem quietly because, you know, Maish Rebbeinu didn't put it in the Torah, but Yaakov Avinu did say it. And the Rabbi Yisrael gives a mashal, mashal abas melech, sharicha tzike kedera. I'll give you a, a mashal to, the, to a princess who smelled the, she smelled the burnt part of the chalent, the burnt part of, of the uh, of the food, and she had a problem. She said, if I'm going to ask for the burnt part of the food, people are going to make fun of me. I'm a princess. I shouldn't be eating the burnt part. So her avadim would bring it to her. Her servants brought it to her secretly. Same idea with Baruch shame. It's a secret we have from Yaakov Avinu, so therefore we only say it quiet, quietly. The Mekubalim harp on Tzike Kedeh, or the Mekubalim say Tzike, is Gematria 210. Has to do with a whole uh, uh, very advanced stuff with uh, the Kunim of Rachel and Leah. It's a fascinating topic. I, I advise you to look in the Sidere Yavitz or in the Sharkavanis. Very interesting topic for what CK Kedera means. There's a similar Medrash by Maishar Bain. The Maishar Bain went up to get the in Dvarim, Dvarim Rabbah. The, the Medrash says Maishar Bain went up to Shemayim. He heard the Malachi Asharis praising Hashem with Baruch Shem, and he brought it down to Klaiusol and he taught them this secret. And because he taught it to them in secret, Therefore, we also say it quietly. Very similar idea. Now, Rabbi Abo has a different version. Rabbi Abo says, no, that's not why we say it quietly. I'm Rabbi Abo, his skin is Ram. The Chachamim really said we should say Baruch Shem out loud, just like in the Beis HaMikdash. But, um, sorry. Originally, the Chachamim said we should say it quietly. 
But because of the Terumas Haminim, today we all say it out loud. Fascinating thing. So Rebo has a slightly different history. He's saying, no, you might think that the Takana was to say quietly. Well, yes, but we also have a, ta- a new Takana to say out loud because the heretics uh, complain. What does that mean? Terumas Haminim means that the sectarians, like the Christians, would hear Jews professing their faith in one God. And then afterwards, the Jews would be murmuring. It sounds like they're adding qualifiers. One God, but X, Y, Z, T, D, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So they would make fun of the Jews. Therefore, they added Baruch Shem out loud in order to counter the, the carping and the mocking of, of, the, uh, of the sectarians. Because we don't have any sectarians, we, till today, say it um, quietly. So that's the history that Rabbi Abahu gives. Now, so far, so good. Now, Ismar Elbogen, in his in his uh, uh, monumental research on on Jewish prayer, he believes, and, and I, I don't want to get too too caught up into this, but there's two types. If anyone's familiar with um, learning Masechus Brachas, there's something called Pores al Shema, which is how they used to do Shema in the time of the Tanaim and Amirai. So the Rishonim aren't sure what this means, nor are we till today sure what Korech al Shema means. Like the the people of Yericho would be Korech Shema. After decades of research, Ismar Albogan decided that he had the answer. He believed that Poris El Shema was antiphonal. That meant that the Shiach Tzibur would say Shema Yisrael Hashem Al Kein Hashem Echad. Sorry, the, somebody, somebody would tell the Shiach Tzibur, Poris El Shema. He would stand up by the Ahmad, and then the entire congregation would begin. Shema Yisrael Hashem Al Kein Hashem Echad. And then the, the Shiach Tzibur, when hearing the congregation declare God's name, he would then answer, as deference and respect to hearing God's name called out. Then the congregation would say, and then he would reply the next Pasuk. They would say the next Pasuk, he would say the next Pasuk. So they would they would alternate Pasukim. That's what he believes Poreh Salshema means. Poreh Shema, in his view, is that in Yericho, they had a different version. They would have where the, they would wrap it, where the Chazin would say Shema, everyone would say Shema, Hashem, Hashem, Alekeinu, Alekeinu, Hashem, Echad. And because they were doing word by word, there was no room to add Baruch Shem, because Baruch Shem is really a response. Therefore, because he was just leading them word by word, therefore, in Yericho, they didn't, weren't mafsik, and they also didn't say Baruch Shem. Fascinating theory. Um, I don't actually fully understand the complexity of the Paris al-Shema business and how he compares that to Paris al-Shema. I hope that in the future I will. But for now, that's his theory for the difference between Paris al-Shema and Paris al-Shema. Now, Rish Lakish was in the 3rd century. Um, Rabbi Abo was in the 4th century. So let me just look at this timeline with you together. So, so far we have as follows. We have, before the Common Era, we have the people of Yericho being Korech al-Shema and possibly omitting Baruch Shem, even though everybody else is saying Baruch Shem. This is before the Churban. During the, during, during the Beis HaMikdash, we know that it's a doxology in the temple. We know that it's said as a, as a praise in the temple. I should mention, of course, there's a message about Yaakov Avinu saying it, a medrash might be true. It doesn't have to be historical. Rabbi Shlokish, who lives in the 3rd century, is the first person to say it. There's a difference between truth and history. And just because a medrash says that Yaakov Avinu said something, it could be true. It doesn't have to be uh, historical. Something could be more true than history. Just the uh, Hamevin Yavin. We'll talk about it another time. The next next object, 2nd century, we have the Tanoim the Tano speaking about it. We have Rabbi Huda and Rameir talking about Baruch Shem. And we have it in the Tesefta, etc. The third century, we have the Amirim explaining it, like Reish Lakish. And in the fourth century, we have Abba, Rabbi Abo speaking about the practices of the Amirim and how they would do it. And they would say it quietly or loudly, and different communities had different, um, uh, what's it called, different minhagim. Now, Werner himself, 
doesn't believe that you could trust the Gemara. Why? He says, well, think about it. If you look in, in the in the writings of the rabbis and the writings of the Christians, both of them have resentment towards one another. So you can't trust the stories of the rabbis. You can't trust the stories of the Christians. So any account you hear in the Gemara or if you hear in the in the early Christians, just, just take it with a grain of salt. We have to look at the other evidence. So he believes that when the Gemara says they would say it quietly, uh, out loud, because of Terumas Haminim, uh, no. Uh, he doesn't like the whole idea that uh, that um, that perhaps it was meant that it was originally quiet for an unknown reason, and then and then he did it out loud uh, just for the Terumas Haminim. He believes as follows. He believes that the most likely um, answer is that Again, because he's rejecting Rababo, he believes uh, you, can't, you can't believe Rababo's account, or and 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 Reish He believes like this. He says, "Well, think about it." And honestly, it's an attractive opinion, which is why I'm bringing it. After the Khurban, in the Beis Hamikdash, they would say it out loud, right? In other words, Rabbi Abo, who's saying that today we all say it out loud, he's really standing up for his colloquial minig, which was originally the Beis Hamikdash minig. Rabbi Abo doesn't know what he's talking about. In Rabbi Abba's time, they said it out loud because they said it out loud in the Beis HaMikdash. And many communities continued to say it out loud. Why did some communities start saying it quietly? Because of the Chorban. People were so depressed after the Chorban, the sorrow and the mourning and the grief of the Chorban, they couldn't muster to say Baruch Shem out loud with the enthusiasm that they said in the Beis HaMikdash. Therefore, they said it quietly. And many communities had the, the custom of saying it quietly while the Jewish communities who had sectarians in them would proudly say it out loud to counter the sectarians. That's his opinion. And um, I'm bringing it here for anybody. If you see it somewhere, if you see somebody make the statement that people said it quietly because they were depressed after the Horban, know that it comes from him and we can take that for what it's worth. Now, um, if you look in Reyesav Heinemann's Sefer, which is called Hatfila B'Tukufa Satanayim V'Amayrayim, Reyesav Heinemann rejects Eric Werner out of the park. Why? Because many, first of all, he says this whole study of what what can constitute a Jewish doxology or not, or what precisely could, could be defined as a doxology, doesn't concern us at all. This is Jewish liturgy, not Christian liturgy, and we have no business caring about what a Jewish uh, doxology should be. We don't have such a genre. We don't have that. We have brachais, bakashais, shvach, shvachim, we have uh, tefillais, hamedrish, this should not concern us whatsoever. But he does recognize the features of Baruch Shem Kweim that Werner did recognize. For example, you notice that it's always in the third person, in, in the second person. We say Baruch Shem Kweim Sorry, I should say in the third person. We always speak about Hashem in the third person rather than the second person, right? Baruch, we we talk, talk about God indirectly. And we usually speak about Hashem's Kavod and Hashem's Kedusha and all of these uh, aloof ideas. Not aloof, but transcendent ideas of Hashem. Now, it's important for him not to identify Baruch Shem or Baruch Shem Leilam Amein Vamein or Hashem Melech as doxologies in this in the in the sense of Christianity. In Heinemann's world, he wants to identify them as tefillahs of a general genre. These are tefillahs based on Mikdash. When you speak of Hashem in the third person, and it's a short praise, and it's a responsive praise. Right, like or or These responses are indicative of a tefillah from the base of Mikdash. This is where they are born. This is what they were designed for. They were designed for the enthusiasm of the avoda 
in the Beis HaMikdash, in contradistinction to Tzvilais that were born in the Beis HaMedrash, Tzvilais that were born in the Beis HaKnesses, Tzvilais that were born in the house in private. There's a form that interests Heinemann, not a genre. He likes uh, studying here the form. He doesn't want to get strictly stuck to the genre. Now, just because you see a form which is short and it's a praise and a responsive doesn't mean it's from the Beis HaMikdash because we know Hashem Allah Hashem Allah Hashem Yimloch Lamved is post Beis HaMikdash. We know that, um, uh, let's say, Baruch Hashem Lekei Yisrael Amein Vamein is pre-Beis HaMikdash. It comes from the, from the earliest Tehillim. So clearly the format itself doesn't tell you it comes from the Beis HaMikdash, but we know that this format was used in the Beis HaMikdash. And the most important conclusion he has is like this. And this is a, just a fascinating piece of history. And his conclusion is that in the first century, um, well, sorry, up until the first century, at the close of the first Beis HaMikdash, two great fields of tefillah were being born. One field of tefillah, one type genre of liturgy, one form of liturgy, which was being born in that era of the first century and slightly prior, was the bracha. The fixed formula, where it has a fixed text and we have a, a fixed set for how we do things. We have a matbeah brachas, a typhus brachas, right? That was being born in the, in the, in, in the Jewish liturgy of the, of the first century and earlier. They were developing the bracha as the dominant uh, formula for prayer. And that's how the Shemayin Esrei and all of our core tefillahs are brachas, because that was the successful um, the successful genre of liturgy. In the Beis HaMikdash, though, there was an alternative uh, alternative form of tefillah of shvach, which wasn't like the bracha. It wasn't fixed. It had general uh, general praise. It spoke of Hashem in the third person. It didn't speak of Hashem in the second person, like baruch Hashem al-Kinam al It spoke of Hashem in the third person. In generality, speaking of Hashem as transcendent. That genre only remained in a rarity in tefillah today, while the um, while the bracha was dominant, only the Christians retained this idea of doxology and they grew that into their whole liturgy and they took it and went from the small to the big. The last thing I want to say in the last two minutes that we have is just a fascinating idea. Everybody knows this idea that if you say bracha levatala by mistake, you're supposed to say right? Now, where does this come from? In Ashkenazim, after they put on the tefillin shell, uh, and tefillin shell, yeah, they, after they say the second bracha, they say bar shenkoy machusilelamvayet, as if because maybe perhaps the second bracha is bracha levatala, so we say bar shenkoy machusilelamvayet. Very strange thing. This all comes from the Rambam, who learns this from a Gemara Nushalmi. The Gemara Nushalmi says that if a person takes a tunip, right, he takes a termusa, and he takes a turnip, and he says a bracha, and then he drops it, and he goes and he picks it up. Does he have to say a bracha a second time? The Nushalmi says, well, how would that be any different than saying a bracha on a river of water? The water is passing. You say a bracha, the water leaves, and then you take a drink. The Gemara says, well, you had kavana on the water that was coming, so that's not a good raya. Then the Gemara brings a raya from bread, where one, one Amaira says, if you pick up a piece of bread, and you say a bracha, and then you don't get a chance to eat it. One of the Amairim says you have to say a bracha a second time. The other Amairim says, no, don't say the bracha a second time. Instead, say barashin kvayim alchusay laylam vayed, and then eat the, eat the bread. So the Rambam learned this Gemara to say that it's an oopsie-daisies, right? It's kind of like a repair. It's kind of like a, a way of repairing. Uh, it effectuates some sort of repair. And I said a shame Hashem, so I don't want to chazer shalom be over and and say the name of Hashem without, uh, without due purpose. So I say barashin kvayim alchusay laylam vayed. The Ramban, and, and, and this became the halacha, but Rabbi Yitzchak Perlau, and Rabbi Menachem Mendel Kasher brings this. I, so I didn't get a chance to find Rabbi Perlau in his Sefer on, on, this, on the on the Sefer Mitzvah of Sadiagayin. Rabbi Perlau proves from a couple of Roshayim, like the Ramban and the Arzurua and his son, that the Ramban understood this, and, and the Arzurua understood this Gemara very differently. Not that Baruch Shem Kavayim Al-Husay is a way to repair and say, oopsie daisies, 
is a way of saying a pseudo bracha, right? You need to say a bracha now. It was 20 seconds since you dropped that piece of bread and you need to say another bracha, but we don't want to say another bracha since you just said it 20 seconds ago. So instead of saying another bracha in, in total, in, in, in its full, we say a pseudo bracha before you eat the bread. In which case, that's what the Ash- if the Ramban is, is understanding is correct, then what the Ashkenazim are doing makes no sense. Because after you, you put on the second pair, it's fill-in. If you say, it doesn't effectuate any repair. You're not, um, why would you do that? Like, at, you're not fixing anything. The whole point of it is in case you, uh, your first one uh, wasn't used in time or was used for the wrong thing, therefore, uh, or was used at the wrong moment, you would say, as a pseudo-bracha. So with that, we're going to end our very surface, I'm sorry, very, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, whew, very quick uh, history of Barashim Kweim Machusil We're about to start our beat here, so thank you everybody for your time and attention. They're about to start Kaddish. If anybody has any questions, I'll pause it, and we'll continue right after. Um, let's...